Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Haken, an Animal Crossing podcast. Your podcast dedicated to all things Animal Crossing. Episode 100 is brought to you by Waffles, Verity, Lyalatron, Madeline Hawkins, Emily, Cathario, Kiwi, Emrock, Grizzly, Nina, Samshine, Emily with two E's, Agatha, Zekin, Sugar Poof, Annie of Pine Tree, Leto Jager, Satan herself, Nernip, Fraser Connell, and Brian Bender. Patrons who have been extremely generous and raised their pledge above $1. Today, Sergio and I are joined by an incredibly special guest. She is the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, co-owner of Pink Gorilla, and all-around awesome Animal Crossing fan, Kelsey Lewin. So to begin, hi Kelsey, how are you? (laughs) Hi, I'm doing great, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, of course. And of course, Sergio, how are you doing? Hey, Chewy, I'm doing quite well. Um, you know, September is almost over. Where did it go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, now you, you just let everybody in on the secret. We're recording this way <laughs> earlier than usual, <laughs> um, which is okay. Uh, we... We managed to find a time to get you in, Kelsey, and I'm so excited. I... I've been wanting you on the show for a long time. <laughs> so, I was actually a little confused why you hadn't asked me yet, but I didn't want to impose. I was like, he follows <laughs> me on Twitter. He knows I'm a big Animal Crossing fan. I wonder if he's ever going to ask me to be on the show. So I'm, I'm very, very honored to be on episode 100. Well, I was very happy and honored as well to know that you listened to some of our episodes and were actually interested. So <laughs> it's a it's a big deal for me, for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess most of the reason I hadn't asked you yet was just because I wanted episode 100 to be a very special uh, guest. And I thought you are a very awesome person right. to have on the show, for sure. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, um, I I guess just a little background. Um, I remember, um, you know, when you I started this podcast a while ago, mostly because I felt like nobody was talking about Animal Crossing. And to be fair, there wasn't really a reason to when we started it like two years ago. Um, But as somebody who started it, it was mostly because I was just like, man, I really wish there was something out there Animal Crossing related to watch or anything. And so during that time, I also kind of found your stuff and all of the cool, like history things, your collection of Animal Crossing stuff. So that's kind of how I found you, essentially. <laughs> yeah, I think I have a video that where I talk about uh, my Animal Crossing collection, and I did a video on my own channel that's some fun facts about Animal Crossing that you probably don't know because they're from some interviews I had translated. So unless you speak Japanese and have some Japanese magazines at your disposal, uh, <laughs> I think it's all new information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what I really liked about it, too, because it was literally stuff that because I look stuff up all the time and I'm like, I actually did not know any of these things. These are really great. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love researching. That's my favorite. So yeah, yeah, we're gonna get into that. I'm really excited about that. Um, but before we do, let's actually start with your history with Animal Crossing. And I guess I like to get a background of everybody and where they started the, playing the game and everything. So when did you first play Animal Crossing? So I got the game for Christmas in I want to say 2004. Um, so it was. A- about a year after the game had come out in America. Um, and I didn't know anything about the game, which is funny because I, you know, I had a subscription to Game Informer at the time. I, it's not like I was completely not paying attention. I loved my GameCube. Um, but I literally just saw the box at an EB Games, which, you know, <laughs> <laughs> dating myself here, but um, at an EB Games. And I just thought it looked so cute and interesting. Um, I had liked Harvest Moon and I was like, oh, this looks, you know, I like animals. I like that sort of style of game. Um, So I put it on my Christmas list and forgot about it and then got it for Christmas. And we were actually out of town uh, for Christmas that year. So I just had to like read the manual and stare at it for a few days until I got (laughs) to be home with my GameCube. Um, But yeah, so I started with the first one. I've been a huge fan ever since. Um, A like extreme fan that, you know, stands outside of the doors of GameStop before the game releases and, you know, goes to all the midnight <laughs> nice. launches and stuff. So, Yeah, that's that really takes me back, especially like being out of town during that time of year and getting a present that the payoff is not immediate at yeah. that point. <laughs> um, but even like, I don't know, growing up, now I'm mostly digital, I will say, but I do remember growing up, getting a game, and then just, like, opening the box in the car, reading every single piece of information in the little booklet, and just getting more and more pumped to get home and play a game, so... Those were always the longest car rides, where you're just, like, staring (laughs) at the manual, staring at the box, you're like, come on, gotta get home (laughs) to my game system. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. It just feels like you're never gonna get home. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I guess, like, what made you fall in love with the series, like, once you started playing it? Well, I think it came to me at, like, exactly the perfect time in my life, because I was um, probably about 10 or 11 years old. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, preteen age. And I was really, I was the uh, oldest child in my family, but I had some older cousins. And I just really, was really, really fixated on appearing mature and like I was not cool with being a 10 11 year old like I really Mm. wanted to just grow (laughs) up fast and so the game was like hey look you're you're the boss you got your own house you know you can you can design stuff however you want and I think that really spoke to me at that age specifically where I was like yeah okay I'm in charge now like I can make decisions (laughs) and people have to people are going to listen to me and care what I have to say not you know (laughs) I was just a kid right so um that was what really made me fall in love with it. Of course, I loved, you know, the music. I loved meeting all of my neighbors and feeling like there was a real, you know, friendship and connection there. I think the game did such a good job of making you feel like this was a real place that actually mattered. And, you know, every time you go into this world, it's, of course, it's a video game. And even at 10, I wasn't, you know, I I knew they weren't real or anything, but it, it made you care. It made you care about the town you lived in and your relationships with everyone else so that's sort of what made me fall in love it was it was almost instant I loved the game basically as soon as I started it yeah yeah and I it does such a good job of doing that especially for people at that age too it's just like 
you you get so used to all of the rules, all of the stuff you have to do going to school and everything. Not that it's like, I guess, more busy than being an adult or anything. Sure, but when you're a kid, you don't have that like baseline to compare it to. So yeah, you feel like, oh, cool, I can... You know, the rules, of course, are perfectly fair in the real world. It makes sense. You got to go to school. But when you're 10, you don't <laughs> feel that way. And yeah, <laughs> it makes you a lot more appreciative of a world that kind of lets you do what you want to do. Yeah. And I know, I feel like, Sergio, you relate to that too, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, because KK Slider, he just opens up with telling you how it is. He's like, you got this place. It's just for you. You can do whatever you want, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess you've played all of them, which has kind of like been the most influential on you. Which mainline game has been your favorite? So three of them are favorites for different reasons. Um, the only <laughs> one that I'll say for sure is not my favorite is City Folk. Um, but I would say the most influential one for sure uh, was Wild World for me, the DS one. So I was actually a moderator of a pretty big Animal Crossing site at the time. And I just spent, I spent all my time on that <laughs> site. And, you know, because it was the first time you could really open up and do Wi-Fi and start really connecting with right. people all over the world. Um it was the perfect environment to be kind of in an internet community for. And it was still like, you know, not super young internet, but younger internet when we were all still posting on uh, forums and like doing IRC chats and stuff, you know, right. way before Discord <laughs> and and what it's turned into now. So, you know, it was a really good environment to just start meeting people from all around the world and of all different walks of life and just being able to share kind of your own little brand of what you want your life to be with these people. So I, I loved inviting people over to my town and um, showing them my house. And, you know, also I was like 13, 14 years old, and I really liked having the power of being a moderator. <laughs> I, felt, <laughs> I felt important, um, you know, like an important person in the Animal Crossing community, which I realize now is like probably not something you want in a moderator is someone who feels powerful but <laughs> <laughs> i was i was young <laughs> give me a break <laughs> yeah yeah and it kind of you know it fulfills that same thing where animal crossing was that essential place that you can call your own and do your own thing and then also that forum was your place where you're like man i'm the boss of people here too <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i was unfair but i was also you know a, a teenager and <laughs> yeah you know you make fresh decisions and you yeah. learn from them at at all points so i get that <laughs> um so how do you feel i guess about like the spin-off titles in the games i guess essentially every game we've gotten post new leaf yeah it's crazy we've had so many spin-offs in a row um and i think i mean i think it was time for animal crossing to have spin-offs certainly like Pretty much every other major Nintendo franchise has, you know, several different types of spinoffs. So right. um, even though, you know, most people don't like Amiibo Festival and um, Pocket Camp has certainly some mixed feelings from people, <laughs> um, I, you know, I agree with them existing. I think it's I think it's a good idea for the Animal Crossing series to have these spinoff titles. I will say Happy Home Designer is excellent. I had a ton of fun with that game. Um, <laughs> it's really just 
kind of, you know, it, it's not Animal Crossing, but it's sort of the pieces of Animal Crossing that, like, if you don't want to have to do any of the work or um, go through the whole learning to exist in this town and build things slowly and you just want to make pretty houses, which I get it. Sometimes you just want to make pretty houses. Um, <laughs> I think... I think that one was really fun. I actually bought this book. Um, it's like almost 600 pages. Um, it's a Japanese guidebook for Happy Home Designer. Um, oh. We have a an import bookstore here in Seattle uh, near me, and they were selling this book. And I, I picked it up, and it's it's just it's enormous. It's a huge book. Um, but what they have in there is they have a room inspiration for every single villager in the game. Oh, wow. So it's it's super cool because it's just so much design inspiration all in one spot in a book and, you know, all Animal Crossing related. I mean, there's like tons of design inspiration books for like the real world, for your actual house and your actual apartment and, and that sort of thing. But I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was really cool that they made this giant book just for this game just so that you could have a bunch of ideas uh for designing all these rooms yeah that's amazing i was gonna say that sounds like 600 pages that sounds like they made something for every single villager <laughs> yeah literally every single villager and then there's there's some other stuff in there too like you know just general guidebook stuff like how to play the game but um it's all in japanese so i'm mostly looking at the pretty pictures <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's always nice to have good Animal Crossing pictures in your life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, a little follow-up on that. Like, how did you feel about, like, Amiibo Festival and Pocket Camp? Um, you know, I <laughs> I joke. I play Pocket Camp every single day. I've never missed an event. I've never missed a piece of furniture that you didn't have to pay leaf tickets for. But most of the time, I don't know why I'm doing it. I'm like, I kind of hate this. Why am I still playing this? <laughs> Um, I don't hate it, but you know, it's, it's a mobile game. It's got a lot of like very predictable and repetitive things to it. Um, I think a lot of people have talked about how it's kind of predatory with just how much the fortune cookies cost and that sort of thing. Um, although that being said, I got two five-star items in a row these last two days, which is nuts. Wow. Yeah. Right. That's never, I mean, I've definitely not been lucky before in this game, but I got the, uh, the tree trunk for the maple's uh, autumn cookie, and then I got the um, oh gosh, what is it called? The big shrine thing <laughs> from the uh, you know what I'm talking about? The big red shrine. Oh gosh, is it from the? <laughs> I feel like that one's from the. What's that ostrich's name? Yeah, uh, is it? It's not Gladys. She had the other Japanese inspired one, right? Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, I know which one you're talking yeah. about. I can't think of their name, um, but I'm really jealous because I I want that tree trunk thing. Yeah, it was it was completely unexpected, and of course both of those came when I wasn't actually like purchasing them. And I've spent quite a bit of money on this game purchasing uh, fortune cookies. So um, you know, I don't I don't hate the game. I do like. I think there's some really really good furniture in it. Like just some of the most well-designed, most interesting stuff that they've ever had is in this game for sure, and I hope a lot of it appears again in uh, New Horizons. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a... <laughs> it can be kind of predatory sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I've made my fair share of complaints of how much things cost in that game, but yeah. you know, I'm kind of the same. I've missed a lot of things because I think last summer I took a lot of time off of the game, but... Once I got back on um, 
I've kept playing and gotten most things. Every once in a while, I'll skip an item or two where I'm just like, eh, I don't really need that one. Um, but I do play enough where I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll give them some money. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, I've been playing this game since it came out, so I'm not like against the idea of spending money on mobile games for sure. But I do think that, you know, when you have both something that's a lottery system and you're paying for it um, and mm. you have no control over whether or not you get doubles and that sort of thing. Um, I spent, I think probably $15 on the, uh, on Goldie's cookie, the one that had the little, um, like all the books and stuff in the trees. Um, I really wanted one of those trees. I spent $15, did not get a single tree, but I did get four pairs of glasses. Oh my God. That didn't feel good. (laughs) Yeah. I did the same thing with that one. Um, I don't, I don't remember if I spent money back, but I did use like every leaf ticket I had. And I think I got <laughs> two of those trees. And then recently when it, it, cause it's been reissued for the past week mm-hmm. and I got just one of the free 5,000 bell cookies and I got a tree, a tree from one of those. And I was like, <laughs> yes, this is nice. the greatest day. <laughs> Um, yeah, and it's a bummer because that one's just like a three-star item, and you're like, it I know, should just be I, coming out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I got two of the, uh, you know, like, pack of fives or whatever. Um, I can't right. remember. But I spent, you know, I spent some actual money trying to get one of those stupid trees and still didn't get money. So, and I'm not oh, spending any more money on that, even though I know they just reissued it in the game, but I'm not. I can't. I can't spend any more money on that stupid yeah, cookie. Yeah, that, that's how they get you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, do you have a favorite, like, special character or villager? Yeah, my favorite villager is uh, Midge, the pink bird. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually had a custom amiibo of her made for oh, me. Oh, nice. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have ever seen um, DIY Crossing. They do stream yes. on Twitch sometimes. Uh, so I was finally able to snag, they have like super limited spots, you know, they make like four custom amiibos a month or something like that, but I was finally able to snag one and got a really, really cute midge amiibo, um, which now sits proudly on my desk. Um, but yeah, so that's my favorite villager, um, which is funny cause she wasn't really in any of my original towns. Um, I would say my favorite that was in an original town for me is, um, probably Puck, the penguin. Um, He was in my very first town, and so he still kind of holds a special place in my heart. Uh, (laughs) But I just really like birds. I'm (laughs) like all the bird (laughs) villagers. Yeah, that's right. I've been looking at your profile pic with your bird kind of hanging off of your (laughs) headset. Yeah, he's currently locked in the other room, so he doesn't squawk on the podcast. So yeah, <laughs> that's how my birds are. I, I have a couple parakeets. So oh, do you? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so I'm super jealous because I've been trying to snag one of those DIY crossing amiibo for I don't know how long now, but they are very limited, and that's yeah. really cool that you got one. <laughs> I think I set. I have tweet alerts set up for them, and then I also set an alarm for myself on the day, <laughs> like on the day and the time they're going live. Um, and I think they're in like the UK or something like that, so mm-hmm. I, it's like an awkward time of day 
to, <laughs> to oh, well. do it, but <laughs> yeah. but that's what I had to do to get one. So um, there's there's your pro tip is tweet alerts and <laughs> setting alarms for yourself. Yeah, I'll have to do that because I, I do get like notified because I followed them on Twitch. And so I get notified whenever they're streaming and I'm like, oh, that was five in the morning for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One day I want to catch one of their, for me, early morning streams. <laughs> um, all right. And then I guess what is your fondest memory of playing Animal Crossing? Oh, gosh, this is such a hard one because, you know, I've just been playing for so many years and through so many games. I would say that the best times to me were probably playing Animal Crossing Wild World and having people from all over the world hanging out in my town. Um, one thing I do in every town I've ever made, um, and I don't really know why, um, is I make a coffee shop in my, like my main floor is decorated to be like a coffee shop, um, which was very hard to do in the first game, by the way. There was no coffee items, like no coffee cup items or anything <laughs> like that. So I had to get kind of creative. There was a tea set item and that was the closest thing I could use. Um, but so I really liked the idea of being like, hey guys, come on over and have coffee over in my town. Um, and, if, you know, of course, as early as Wild World, there was, an actual coffee shop, but it, whatever. I still wanted to make mine because <laughs> um, Brewster existed. But um, so, yeah, my fondest memories were having people from the community and kind of all over the place come over and, you know, just sitting in my house and we'd be talking. Um, usually we'd be talking over IRC instead of the in game stuff just because it's kind of hard to type right, right. with the stylus. <laughs> but, um, yeah, hanging out and just seeing each other's towns. That was that's to me like some of the coolest moments in Animal Crossing is um showing people what it is that your town is all about and then seeing what their town's all about and what kind of things that they, you know, prioritize and and like and want to show off. Mhm. Mm yeah, that that's really awesome, especially cuz like not a lot of people really recognize how big Animal Crossing is for online because it was like what Nintendo's second game that had online or something. Um, it was very the, yeah, it was early it on. was pretty it was pretty early. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of other. There certainly wasn't a whole lot of games where you were like sharing something with people. There were you know things where you could be sort of competing and that sort of thing, but. Um, this was a different feeling than most online games where, you know, even even in like an MMO or something like that, you're usually like just doing a fight together or something, doing a quest together, um, or you're playing online with someone in a game like Counter-Strike or something and you're just shooting each other. So this is one where it's like, no, come on over. Like, I want to show you some stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, it's the first show and tell over the internet. Essentially. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Uh, well, that's really awesome. I really like hearing your background with the game and everything. And especially because you have like such a huge collection of things. And we have some questions about that a little later on. But let's move into talking about Pink Gorilla, which is sure. a store that you co-own. And Sergio, I think you had a story regarding pink gorilla yeah you do. yeah i do <laughs> you know it sounded really familiar when i heard the name so i looked it up i noticed that it was in the seattle area up in washington and uh, at that point i realized okay this cannot be a coincidence because i knew of a store called 
pink Godzilla that was yeah. in there. And yeah, it yep. turns out that was the same store, but just before, I believe around 2009, we changed to pink Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I think... Uh... I thought it was 2008, but you know what? I don't actually. <laughs> no, I don't want to swear by that. Um, yeah, so that that's exactly right. So the store has been around for um, almost 15 years now. Uh, oh, nice. I obviously have not owned it for 15 years because I'm 25. Uh, but, uh, so. I uh, took over the store um, with my fiance. We were both managers there. We had been managers there for three or four years. Um, in 2000, oh gosh, uh, 2016 was when we took over. So it's been a little over three years now. And uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's been Pink Gorilla the entire time I've known it. Um, mm-hmm. They changed the name fairly early on. But yeah, same store. <laughs> so that's cool that you've been there. Yeah, 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 it definitely it looked awesome. I I remember ordering a game from them too. Um, I lived in the area for about a year, and it it, it was a great place. Yes. Yeah, definitely around that time, um, there was a really big focus in the store on import stuff, and we still yes. focus on import stuff a lot. But it was uh, there was a lot more like ordering brand new import stuff because right. that was a lot harder to do back then. Um, now nowadays you can like just go to Amazon Japan and order it straight to your house, but <laughs> yeah. you couldn't do that back in 2006. So <laughs> uh, I'm learning so much. I did not know you lived in Seattle for a little bit. <laughs> Sergio. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's really cool. I guess. How did you like get started working there? So I moved to Seattle in 2012 to go to college at the University of Washington, and um, I had seen the store before because I'd visited Seattle a couple times when I was, you know, figuring out where I wanted to go to college. I'm from Texas, so I was pretty far away from home. <laughs> um, and uh, I just really liked the store. I saw they were hiring, and I was like, okay, I got to get a job here. Um, so I did. I applied and, and bothered them until they gave me a job. And uh, about a year later. Um, was an assistant manager there and, you know, just kind of learned how to run the place for several years until uh, I eventually ended up taking over with my fiance. So it was really just, you know, supposed to be like a cool job (laughs) and not, I had no idea if you had told me in 2012 that it was a possibility that I could own the store. I would have been like, what do I know about owning a store? But I know a lot now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that actually works because what I was going to ask next was just like, what are some challenges that you face running a store? So there's a couple things that I think people don't really think of, or maybe don't consider um, when they think about, you know, running a store and stuff. I get a lot of people who are like, oh, that seems like such a cool job. And it definitely is. I mean, I I love it for sure. Um, One of the biggest challenges is actually just keeping good stuff in stock. Uh, You know, we sell used games and there's not like a distributor of used games and especially not retro games. There's not like a, a company I can call up and be like, give me 30 more copies of Mario Kart 64, you know? Um, And so... I really, really, of course, want to, I don't want to disappoint any customers. Uh, They come in and they're really excited to pick up a game that they had in their childhood or a game they've been hearing about or they saw on YouTube or something like that. And when we don't have it, I feel really bad about it. But it's it's tough. It's very tough to kind of continue to tap this finite resource, especially when a bunch of people are 
holding on to them uh, either for a collection or like it's just sitting in someone's garage somewhere. Mm. Um, so you have <laughs> you have this finite resource that can be kind of difficult to work with. So a lot of my job is finding creative ways around that because we can't just rely on people selling stuff to the store. That's where we get a lot of stuff. But, um, you know, I'll go to conventions and I'll try to um, buy out people's collections. And then one of the other things we do is we try to make import stuff as accessible and friendly as possible, um, which is something that I've been working on with the store for several years. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of it now. Um, but basically, Japan doesn't have quite the same problem that we do over here, where um, this stuff is super expensive and can be hard to get your hands on. And, uh, you know, not every store is going to have a copy of Mario Kart or Zelda or whatever. Um, in Japan, they don't really have that problem. It's just not really as big of a retro game scene there. So while there are retro game stores, they basically always have all the good stuff in stock and mm. it's still pretty cheap. Um, so I try to make you know as much of that stuff accessible to our local customers, obviously, first of all, by importing it, but second of all, by kind of educating them on like how they can play a lot of the import titles. There's stuff that is never going to be super accessible. I mean, a game like Pokemon has a ton of text in it. It's not going to be an easy thing to play if you don't speak Japanese. But there's a lot of games for like the Super Famicom, which is the Japanese Super Nintendo, or um, for the Nintendo 64, where there's just like really not hardly any text in it. Um, so, and it's way cheaper. Like you can, if we don't have, um, I don't know, Kirby 64 in stock for the Nintendo 64, which is mm. like a, a 20 or $25 game for a US copy. We do have a $10 Japanese copy of that game in, and there's basically zero text in the entire game. You can absolutely play it, even if you know zero Japanese. <laughs> and so we try to make that stuff accessible. Um, I will we'll mod uh, systems so that they can play other region games, um, usually for free if it's an easy mod, like for the Nintendo 64 or the Super Famicom. Um, so yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest challenges is just trying to get people the games they want. That's that's the one I'm always trying to solve. <laughs> <laughs> that's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, I I visit like every once in a while. I'll visit like. Um, pretty much stores like this. Um, mostly when I was in Arizona for a bit, I went to a place pretty regularly. And yeah, I, I was always really impressed with like, how are people always able to like have all of these games here? Because like, I know if I had it, I wouldn't be like just selling it somewhere, <laughs> you know? Um, so it just seems like a really tough task to be able to have some sort of stock of stuff that people are looking for, you know? Yeah. Um, so... It's really cool. And, and I didn't realize that, like, you could mod the N64 so easily, because <laughs> now <laughs> I'm going to want to look into that. Yeah, it requires a really cheap, like, specialty screwdriver. It's called a 4.5 millimeter game bit and a pair of pliers, and that's all you need. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that and learn, because I've always wanted to just, like, revisit... Uh, that original Animal Crossing on N64. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a really popular one when we have that one in. Um, oh, nice. A lot of times people really want to pick that one up just because they're like, oh my god, they, this game came out on Nintendo 64? I gotta try it. I gotta see it. <laughs> and, you know, I'll tell them, I'm like, it's 
the same thing as the GameCube one, just with less stuff, and also it's all in yeah. Japanese. They're like, I don't care, I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> but no, I mean, I have a copy of the game, too. I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess what is, like, the most rewarding thing about, like, working at Pink Gorilla and running that store? Oh, definitely the most rewarding thing about being your own boss is the freedom. <laughs> um, it's really, really nice that I'm able to, you know, take time off when I want to take time off. I can go to conventions when I want to go to conventions. Um, maybe that's not quite the answer you're looking for. But... <laughs> I mean, no. I like, I also really like just being a part of the retro game community and, and especially the Seattle community and helping people. It's cool when we get people who, you know, who have been shopping with the store for, I've been with the store for like seven years now. So it's cool to see like, there's still some of the same people I knew seven years ago shopping with us. Oh. Um, that part's really rewarding. Yeah. Well, both of those are really awesome. Cause I'd love to just have more control over my schedule and go to conventions a lot more often. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. So I guess this is kind of like a side kind of thing, but we've seen like news about, places like GameStop downsizing or closing stores? And I guess, like, how do you see brick and mortar changing in the years to come? Well, I think it's going to be tough for a lot of stores to adapt. Um, but that being said, I mean, I don't, I don't think that we're at a point yet where, you know, it's doom and gloom and digital's taking over completely and no one's going to want any physical games anymore. I just think, you know, a, a good store, a really healthy store is going to kind of be on top of it and figure out other ways to kind of diversify what they're doing and still keep it interesting. So for instance, we sell a lot of uh, imported merchandise. We get a bunch of like um, Japanese plushies and keychains and that sort of thing. Um, you guys have probably seen in Japan, they do like these gachapon machines where you pay a couple yes. bucks and you get like little keychains or figures and they do this for so many series, but then also for just random cute stuff too. But they will be like, you know, um, a bunch of like little different colored squids from Splatoon on a keychain or um, different like Dragon Ball Z characters and that sort of thing. So we carry a lot of that, um, which is interesting because you can't really get it anywhere else because it's Japanese. Right. Um, it's related to people's interests if they're shopping in there. And so I, I think part of it certainly is going to be diversifying. And if, I don't know if GameStop's going to be able to quite pull that off. Um, we'll see. <laughs> you know, they they did some stuff with the, you know, they acquired ThinkGeek and they've been selling more merchandise and stuff in their stores. But some of it, I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel like a lot of it's just kind of lame. Like, I don't yeah. really want like a, like a puzzle for Five Nights at Freddy's or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's asking for that? So, yeah, merch, but interesting merch. Um, and then, yeah, just cultivating sort of the the hardcore community, which I think is still going to be around. There's always going to be people who want to continue to collect video games. And so maybe it'll skew a little bit more that way in the future and be less of the casual audience. But if you're if you're staying smart and staying on top of it and experimenting with some new stuff with your local customers, I think that I think there's still going to be room for retro game stores in the future. Mm. Yeah, especially like, you know, there's so much stuff that it's so hard to find sometimes and you really just have to go out to a retro game store to find it. So, yeah, 
Yeah. And then it's funny you mentioned like a puzzle because I think they made, uh, I think GameStop had like seasonal puzzles for Animal Crossing. I know. I have two of them, but I'm never <laughs> going to open them or do anything with them. <laughs> yeah. I'd probably open them. I, I like a good puzzle. <laughs> I guess a jigsaw, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I think there was somebody on our Discord who every time the new one came out, they like, posted a picture they're like i got it (laughs) nice well yeah yeah, i don't think there's anything wrong with puzzles specifically (laughs) i just think there's a whole lot of stuff out there that's like not reflective of the audience that is trying to Mm. get it like um so (laughs) you know gamestop had a few of their own published games like uh song of the deep and stuff like that and they really tried to push merch hard for that and i just i didn't understand who was buying that it's like (laughs) this is a this is a gamestop published game like i don't think there's people who want a bunch of figures of this game that you're publishing like you don't have you're not nintendo you know you don't have the like push behind you (laughs) where people are going to be really interested in the characters i don't know i mean it's it's an interesting experiment i don't i don't think they're wrong for trying but some of those decisions i was like really don't think you need a song of the deep puzzle i just i don't think anyone's buying that (laughs) yeah and that explains like the two i don't know three how long did they push that because i remember like maybe like two years I'd walk into GameStop and they're just like constantly had those posters up for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, that's really awesome. I really love the, I guess, background that you have into that world um, because I mostly see it like, I don't know, every like maybe once, twice a year when I'll go into a store or when I go into conventions too. I I like seeing a lot of the retro gaming stuff there. So it's really cool to get your background on it. Um, So let's actually hop into uh, the Video Game History Foundation, uh, which you are now co-director of. That's very awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, so um, I want to start by asking you, like, when did your love for video game history start? So this has actually not been like a lifelong thing for me. I've always really liked learning, um, but I didn't really know it was, I didn't really understand that I had a love of researching until um, pretty late in my life. I would say not till I was like 18 or 19. Um, and it started, believe it or not, with a Super Nintendo game called Packy and Marlon. Have you ever heard of that game? No, I don't think no. I have. <laughs> okay, so it is a Super Nintendo game, and it's about uh, diabetes. It's a platformer where you learn to manage your diabetes um, by like eating fruit and giving yourself insulin and answering quiz questions and stuff. And for whatever reason, when I was 18 years old and I first learned about this game, something just like went off in my head, and I was like, "Oh my god, games can be so weird. This is so interesting. <laughs> I need to just what else is out there? What else weird stuff is out there?" So I basically that was like the moment where I decided that I was gonna just start researching stuff, and and I did, and I got really into you know the first couple times I attempted to research things, you know, I did a lot of the really surface level stuff. I mean, I was a little bit smarter than knowing, you know, Wikipedia is not the end all be all of <laughs> of research, but um, you know, I got better and better at it as I went and found found that it got really really hard if I wanted to do substantial research that it was just 
absolutely scattered to the four winds. Um, I've done research at the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester. I had to fly out on a plane to Rochester, New York, and go to their um, library and have their like archivists pull certain uh, you know boxes with <laughs> design documents in them and certain magazines and that sort of thing. Um, I do a bunch of research on like you know the Internet Archive if you're familiar with that. Um, where it's sort of an archive. It's 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 got its problems, but it's still the best source of like anything. Mm. Um, it basically it's just crawled the web for the last uh, I don't know, since the early 2000s or late 90s, and um, tried to take an image of all of you know of what websites looked like back then. So you can mm -hmm. kind of go to websites that are now defunct, um, see stuff that hasn't been active. You know, if you were to go to the website now, it, it looks completely different. All that stuff is completely vanished. Mm. Um, and so I, I found a lot of stuff through through that, but you know, and, and gone to local libraries and used online databases and stuff. I mean, it's just there's a whole lot of information out there that is just absolutely not centralized whatsoever. Um, and I find it really fun. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's sort of where that all started. Yeah. So then I guess how did that lead you to, I guess, the Video Game History Foundation? So a couple different things, a couple different stars aligned for that to happen. I was at a time in my life where I was extremely frustrated. This is about two and a half years ago when the Video Game History Foundation was first founded. Um, I was extremely frustrated with just how difficult it had gotten to do my research. Um, and I just happened to come across <laughs> this brand new foundation that just sprung up out of the blue. Um, and read about it and was really interested in kind of what they were doing, which was basically trying to make my life easier as a researcher. It's like, <laughs> let's hey, let's find all of this stuff. Let's save all of this stuff. Let's make it more accessible. Um, let's allow people to, you know, not have to spend years learning how to become a really good researcher to find anything. Um, let's get it all public. Let's get... Um, Let's get companies on board with it. Let's get them cool with the idea that people should be studying this stuff. And let's get more cool stories about video games out there. Um, so at the time, what I thought I wanted to do with my life um, was like PR and marketing for the game industry. I'd already done a little bit of it. Uh, I worked for a local uh, marketing company here and we had we had done like some conventions for a couple of smaller game studios and a couple of like entertainment acts and stuff. And I was, I, you know, I was in like a pretty junior position. So I was mostly just booking things and, uh, <laughs> you know, writing some of the, the copy and, and that sort of thing. But, um, but I liked it and I was like, okay, this is probably what I'm going to do with my life. I can go be in the game industry, but I don't have to actually make a video game because I, don't think I ever want to make a video game. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, well, this is a brand new organization. What is my skill set? I can do PR. So I reached out and I was like, let me do your PR for free. I, I just want to be involved because I think this is a really cool organization and it will, you know, as it grows, it's just going to be more and more helpful for me as a researcher. Um, and uh, founder, uh, Frank Sifaldi, actually kind of blew me off at first. And I don't blame him because who am I? I was just some random person saying I'll do free <laughs> PR. Um, but I just kept kind of showing up and, and doing stuff. And I'd 
just delivered a big stack of PR materials to him for no reason whatsoever. And he was like, okay, you're serious. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, then I just started being involved in it, some of the, the smaller projects we were doing. Um, I think that maybe it wasn't that same year, but shortly after that, we did uh, like the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. We helped them set up their museum, um, which we did again last year, and then we're doing it again this year. And, you know, just starting to be involved in some of the smaller projects like that. And that's that's really how I got started. But, yeah, I mean, the, the stars kind of aligned with me being in a place where I could do some free PR. And uh, I just found out about it at the exact time I was pissed off about how difficult research was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's, a, that's always a good reason to get into something. Like, you're just like... <laughs> You find something that's really annoying and you're like, how do we fix that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I really love how you like kind of bounced into that though. It's um, it's kind of like for me professionally, like not doing podcast, not that I do podcasting or YouTube videos professionally, but like professionally, professional? I'm like a copywriter okay. <laughs> in marketing, right? And so most of the reason I fell into this was kind of that same thing where I was like, I really like cartoons. I was looking at positions at like Frederator Studios or something. And I was like, how do I get one of those jobs that are there, but doesn't involve me making a cartoon? Because I probably yeah. can't do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to be around this stuff, but don't make me make it. Yeah. Because, you know, like sometimes you don't really have to be able to make it. You just have to like care about it being made. And that's a good reason to work somewhere, I think. Exactly. <laughs> so I guess thinking about the foundation and everything, like what are your goals working with them? Um, I guess both as the foundation itself and individually. So, you know, our big mission is basically that we want storytellers to have the tools that they need to tell the stories of video games. And that can manifest in a lot of different ways. Um, the way I like to think about it is like, I don't know if you've ever been to a bookstore and seen their video game section, if they have one at all, it's probably just like <laughs> Minecraft and Fortnite books, and there's not any actual like <laughs> books written about video games. I mean, there have been some, but there's just very there's very little out there, especially when you go look at like books about musicians and that sort of thing. I mean, everything else is being studied a lot, um, and so we're just trying to, you know, the ultimate goal is to just promote way more of that sort of thing, way more research, more mm. um, exciting stories. We want people to celebrate and appreciate video games and learn about them. Um, so obviously, you know, just growing the foundation um, and a big part of it is just sort of getting the industry on board with this idea that video games should be studied and celebrated. And that, you know, I don't think there's anyone who individually is like, no, I disagree with that. But um, it's a very secretive industry. So part of what that means is like, no, but like, actually, you should let people access these materials. You should actually talk to them. You shouldn't be so secretive and closed yeah. off and you should, you know, be more open. Um, you know, every movie, like direct movie directors will walk you through all of their decisions and they'll talk about cut stuff and that sort of thing. And video games play their cards very close to their chest and they don't, <laughs> they don't like to talk about that yeah. stuff. So um, those are two pretty big things we're working on. Um, individually. I mean, uh, to be honest, like I already co-direct it. <laughs> uh, my, my focus is definitely more on growing the foundation than growing myself at this point. Um, so yeah, just getting to do more, 
you know, ultimately it'd be cool if I got to just do research um, and get paid to do that, but that's pretty far off and I'm definitely more focused on uh, growing the foundation first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really awesome. And that now makes me want, like, I, I remember getting... I loved getting DVDs in the past, mostly just the ones that had like commentary, like a commentary version. Yeah. So I can listen to people talk about like what went on making like any one scene or any choices they made through that process. So it'd be cool to like watch a video game get oh. played while the developers are actually talking about like their decisions and all that went through making any like one sequence to a game, you know? Yeah, I love that so much. And you know, there there've been a couple of studios and individual directors and stuff who have gone and done stuff like that, but it's very rare and we definitely want it to be a more widely accepted thing. Yeah, and yeah. if they do, it's probably many, like sometimes even decades after the game is out. Sort of like as a as an anniversary celebration. Yeah. But it totally. should be more of a common thing, like a couple of years, maybe just one or two. Yeah, or even released alongside it, you know? Like oh, yeah. it would be yeah. so cool if if there was just more if the people who created video games were more interested in, you know, kind of letting people peer behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really do like that you said specifically the word rare, because the most recent occurrence of this that I saw was, I think, Platonic Games that made ukulele. They went through, like, each of their levels and talked about that development process, and they were... I think each level was like an hour to two hours long of them talking about it. Oh, wow. And I was so really cool. happy to watch that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, and, you know, I bring the connection with Rare there because it is the oh, folks I, from Rare. I get it. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess in case there are any like listeners out there who are interested in this type of work, interested in video game history, like, I guess, what would your recommendations be for how they can become involved or start getting into that world more? Yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of like little things you can be doing, but it's such a disorganized world out there right now that, you know, that's something we want to work on and address at some point. I wish I had like a, oh, you know, here's exactly how you can volunteer with us and, and jump right in. But I don't quite have that lined up yet. But there's a lot of little things you can do. Um, you know, if you work in the industry, especially start saving your stuff. You don't have to necessarily do like, you know, maybe you work for a big company and they're not going to let you do live streams or, you know, you're under NDAs and stuff. And so I don't expect you to try to break the mold yourself necessarily, but at least save your stuff, um, you know, Maybe even just like jot down your thoughts about things as you're developing them. Someone is going to find that really useful in the future. Um, if you're just a fan, even just like blogging and uh, taking photos and that sort of thing and just kind of getting your thoughts out there. These are all things that people in 50 years are going to really need to sort of understand what people were feeling about the game at, at, at a single time. You know, uh, what was the mm -hmm. atmosphere around it like and that sort of thing. Um, and then more like practical stuff. Uh, you can always scan stuff. You can scan, you know, any like if you got some magazines and that sort of thing, the Internet Archive is always willing to host that stuff. <laughs> um, the Internet Archive in general is a really great resource for just putting anything you have up there. Um, there's a site called Redump where if you want to get into like uh, dumping your personal copies of games so that there's just kind of more 
um, oh gosh, what do you call it? Like redundancy out there so that we know mm. that it's a good, clean copy of, of things and we, we fully understand what the game is out there. Um, you know, there's all these just like little little avenues. I don't expect anyone to become a full-blown researcher, but yeah, just the more people we have talking about the stuff and sharing it and um, saving these little pieces, um, taking photos and videos at conventions. Those have been super helpful for piecing together mysteries um, when we, when we come back to things later. So all of those things are helpful um, and any little bit you can do um, definitely helps. Yeah. And I really like what you mentioned about, I guess, kind of remembering how people felt about a game during a given time, like when it came out and everything. Um, I guess the biggest example for me in that case is like remembering how people felt when Wind Waker came out. Yeah, um, that's yeah, a great just example. Knowing, like that had kind of a negative reaction to it being like very much the art style behind it, you know? <laughs> and then now people look back at that game pretty fondly. And so... Yeah, it's really cool to capture like what the perspectives were at a time, you know? Yeah, I think especially if you're like a, a younger person and weren't around for that, yeah, that could be com- that context could be completely lost on you now. People thought <laughs> Wind Waker looked really bad and really stupid, and of course now it's been remade. Um, you know, it's got, had HD remakes and everyone likes it, but yeah, exactly. That's a great great example of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is really cool. So, like, where can people go to support the Video Game History Foundation? So, we've got a Patreon that's got several different tiers. Um, At the $10 level, you can join our really cool Discord where we're all huge nerds and we talk about uh, video game history all day. Um, (laughs) And then, I mean, really, any any amount helps, uh, of course. Uh, You can also just make straight donations on the website, gamehistory.org. And hopefully, I'll have some more, like, actual volunteer work that we can start uh letting people have because i get emails all the time that are like how can i do stuff and i'm like i I don't have anything for you yet i'm sorry (laughs) Um, so look forward to more of that join our mailing list and if you if you can do it of course we would love the support on patreon yeah that's really cool i i love that there are already people that are just want to help and want to do something and it's exciting because it's something that's new and it hasn't really been done to this extent and it, it's good to have like that idea that there are a lot of people backing this project for sure yeah absolutely there's definitely been a good amount of uh support out there i think there's so many people who believe in what we're doing and you know it's up to us now to kind of figure out how to organize it best and make sure that we're making the best use of all of this enthusiasm Mm -hmm. yeah cool so let's go ahead and hop into new horizons which is (laughs) as we all know the new Animal Crossing game coming out early next year. Not early enough, but <laughs> early <laughs> enough. <laughs> early next year. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, so I did see some of your, I guess I saw a tweet that was kind of your initial impression of seeing the game. And I think what you said was something along the lines of like, this doesn't really look like Animal Crossing. You're a bit worried, you know? So can you take us through your initial impressions of the game? Yeah, absolutely. So I know this is going to be very controversial, <laughs> but um, so I'll, let me start with a funny story. Uh, I was very, very nervous for this uh, E3 announcement because I was oh. like, 
I'm pretty sure they're <laughs> going to talk about it. Oh my god, we haven't heard anything. What the heck is it going to be like? And I was just so nervous because, you know, it's been years and years since we've had an Animal Crossing game. Um, I went to bed. I had a nightmare that night that they were going to introduce crafting. And I woke up and I woke my fiance up and I was like, I was like, oh my god, I just had the funniest nightmare that they're going to introduce crafting in Animal Crossing. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> they would never do that. That would be so silly. Um, and of course, as you know, that's like the first thing they showed. <laughs> so, um, and I, you know, obviously nightmares are a really strong word, but um, I've been doing a lot of research on Animal Crossing in general for a project I'm working on right now that can't talk about yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think before I get too deep into this, People are probably going to say that I'm like reading too far into this, that I'm taking it too seriously, that, you know, this is, I'm definitely being a critic here. And I, I respect that. I think that's probably, you know, not super far off the mark, but I just want to be honest about what, um, what Animal Crossing means to me and really what makes it different than all of the other um, life sim type games. I mean, I love Harvest Moon. Um, tons of people love Minecraft and uh, Stardew Valley and all of these other games and stuff. They're all fantastic games in that same kind of general genre. But to me, Animal Crossing has always been pretty separate from all of those. And this game made me feel like it's not so separate. And I'll, I'll explain. So um, one of the things that makes Animal Crossing different to me than other life sims is that you don't have any sense of, like, playing god you're really you know in, in previous games you're really like forced to just kind of assimilate and live within the rules of this game within this community your voice isn't really like any more important than any of your neighbors voices that's maybe not as true in new leaf where you had some like mayor power but um you know in, in general it was like you can make some decisions you can plant flowers and that sort of thing but you can't just like move things around you can't just change the whole town that you don't have that power you just live in this town you know it's just it's kind of like real life you got to learn to live within some of those limitations and carve out like uh, the perfect place for you without taking total control and making it like a like a dollhouse is the way i kind of describe it mm. um so it's more like rather than having a dollhouse it's more like having an aquarium it's like there's still fish and stuff that have to live here. There's rules you have to adhere to um, because fish need certain things to live. And, you know, there's there's only so much creativity you can have, but you can still get pretty creative within those confines. So that's the difference to me. Maybe that's a weird analogy, but that's the one I like to use. So um, in this game, in New Horizons, um, specifically in this last uh, direct they had, um, a couple things really stuck out to me, which... The first one was that you could put a tree in your pocket. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so to me, what that says is like, even a tiny decision, like where to plant a tree, like you don't even have to think about it anymore. Cause if you mess up, you just put the whole tree in your pocket, just move it wherever you want. You know, it kind of <laughs> takes the weight out of some of your decisions. Um, and it makes it feel like a lot more arbitrary to me. Um, and again, I know this is kidding, like kind of, philosophical and stuff rather than <laughs> just being like it's a game come on just have fun with it um 
But that, and of course, you know, they mentioned something about how if you don't like where your neighbors want to move, you can just move them. All of these things to me feel like you have an awful lot of power and your neighbors are more like kind of props in your like perfect Barbie dream island than like having a real living, breathing community. Um, you might totally disagree with that, but that's the feeling that I get out of it. And I still think it's going to be a fantastic game. I still think it looks gorgeous. Um, the dialogue, of course, is going to be great. Um, the building, you know, like there's still going to be a lot of things that are super fun about it. I just think it doesn't feel like the, the things that made Animal Crossing different to me than some of these other life sims, I feel like have kind of gotten blurry a little bit with New Horizons. Mm. You know, so we, I forget how many episodes ago it was now, um, but it was a fairly recent episode, but we did actually talk about some unpopular opinions that we had about Animal Crossing. And one of them that I highlighted was that I like that villagers just move in and you don't have control over it. Yeah, I, totally. I, rec I recognize the annoyance for sure, but... I I feel like I don't want to trade that for <laughs> for yeah um, just the randomness and like you having to accept that there's n you can't control everything in the game you know yeah and and not that I feel like every game should be like preaching to you or anything like that but I feel like it's it's kind of a cool like parallel to the real world it's like it's like all right look in life. There's, you know, not everything's going to be perfect and you're just going to kind of have to learn to live with some things that you don't necessarily like. So, I mean, everyone has a story of an Animal Crossing neighbor that they hated, but you just kind of like, <laughs> that's like part of life is you just have to learn to be around people. You know, it, it's not always about surrounding yourself with the most perfect stuff and making everything this like beautiful dollhouse that's, you know that's perfect it's it's learning to be like okay you know what i don't love where this guy's house is but let me find a creative way to make this still look good or i don't like this <laughs> cranky villager but you know oh he's kind of he's starting to grow on me a little bit you know um and if we had too much control i think no one would ever like you know get creative and experimental with those kind of things or learn to accept mm. you know learn to get interested in something they weren't formerly interested in yeah yeah and uh, speaking of neighbors as well like i still really like that you know your best friends can just move away too um, yeah i think that's like a big lesson to learn from the game which <laughs> i mean a lot of people feel upset when they have to learn like a lesson and feel actual <laughs> sadness when something changes that they're so attached to you know but I think it's it's good. It's important. And I feel like it's a fun, unexpected kind of thing that you get out of the series. Um, and, you know, in case you were worried about how people were going to take it, I we have covered this game a lot, but I've actually been pretty surprised at how a lot of people were very open about how they felt about crafting and just like the game when they first saw it in general, like there was negative reactions um, while I was streaming and watching it myself too. I know Sergio was kind of quiet, but he was like, I'm not quite sure what this is yet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was definitely, I, and I heard you guys have talked about, talked before about like maybe they should have had that treehouse stuff first or something because i think that <laughs> did help some people because yes. yeah that first trailer was a little confusing um 
But yeah, not not a big fan of the crafting thing because rather than it being a kind of a game of luck and patience and just, you know, a, again, learning to like live in a living, breathing world that, you know, has you sometimes you just got to wait for stuff and sometimes you got to just get creative or get lucky. Um, now it's like, well, now you can just kind of grind it out. Right. Like just mm-hmm. keep keep pulling weeds, keep, you know, hitting rocks or whatever. You can just play for eight hours and grind it out. Um, and that really goes against like even what the um, the original uh, tr- uh, directors of the game like to say about it. They used to in interviews and stuff, they'd always be like, you know, we hope you play for like 30 minutes a day. That would be perfect. And I'm a little worried that this is a game that's going to encourage like grinding and playing for eight hours a day <laughs> if you want to get anything done. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I end up doing that regardless. <laughs> sure, but um, but I'm more so that like you have to at this this time mm-hmm. to get stuff done. You know, if you want to like actually get the furniture rather than playing for thirty minutes and being like, oh well, I'll check again tomorrow. It's like, or I could play for another nine hours and grind it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that is pretty funny too. Cause I know a lot of people run into fe- wishing there was more with the game or maybe like things become too routine too um, kind of chore like, you know, sure. and I've always kind of personally really liked when I get to that point in animal crossing where I check in like once a day and it's, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour or so. And then I'm done. Like I'm completely happy with what I did and I can, can't wait to check in tomorrow, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. Because that was one of my big complaints with uh, Pocket Camp when it first came out. Cause I was like, this is uh, surprisingly enough. I feel like I'm playing this or have to play this more than I would a regular Animal Crossing game because yeah, everything changes definitely. every three hours. And if you don't check sometimes, maybe you didn't do enough in this fishing tournament or maybe you didn't do enough with your gardening event, you know? Um, so I just feel like the, the Pocket Camp has been surprisingly more demanding than a mainline Animal Crossing. So I... I I don't know. I, I I guess I hadn't seen the crafting that way. Um, but now, now I'm just like, I hope there's enough of that random <laughs> everyday stuff where like you can't just power through it. You have to be patient and wait because that's always been a beautiful thing to me with Animal Crossing that it just doesn't come all at once. You have to spend the time with it to get there. Yeah. And I think maybe people don't realize that um, that that is a major factor in what makes it such a like relaxing game is that you like you might be disappointed that you don't get something right away, but like you know you can't change it, so you just kind of make peace with it, and you're like, okay, cool, I'm you know I'll find other things to do, and I'll come back again tomorrow. But <laughs> I think if they hang, you know, if they kind of dangle the reward too close to your face. Um, it's going to make people feel like more stressed out about the game and make them mm. feel like they have to work harder um, to get at those things rather than accepting that, you know, it's okay to just wait and be patient and stuff. So, I, you know, the game's not out yet. I could be totally wrong and it could <laughs> still, the crafting could be like a fairly minor part of it, um, but I it doesn't seem that way. And I hope I'm not like... I don't say all this stuff because I want to be negative. This is my favorite series, and I, you know, I, I love it so much, and I'm still going to play the heck out of this game. But you know, the, I have some concerns. 
Yeah. So you also did mention like, you know, the treehouse stuff helped a little bit. So I guess outside of your initial reactions, how are you feeling about the game now? Um, I mean, that's pretty much still where I'm at. I don't feel like they've shown I don't I don't feel like they've really addressed my concerns and I don't think they probably will because I think in general um you know I've been talking about control and uh that sort of thing and I think most people disagree with me. I think most people do just want more control and they do want to like just you know focus on the sort of like the happy home designer elements of it, you know, they really just want to make things look really pretty and really perfect and i you know that's perfectly valid way to enjoy the game um and i think that maybe that's like a wider audience and that's why they're going that direction it's you Mm -hmm. know more people are more into that part of it than they are into the like um you know (laughs) like (laughs) philosophical ways that animal crossing affects you and the lessons it teaches you and that sort of thing and and i get it so i i don't hold any ill will against them or anything but i just i kind of have a feeling that the game is more for that group of people and less for i me (laughs) Mm -hmm. not that i'm not gonna love it and play it but um i i don't think there's anything they they've said that you know addresses those things for me yeah yeah and it does seem like they've basically said the same thing a couple times um with both of like they what they showed at e3 and then the most recent kind of trailer in that direct so um yeah i'm kind of wondering like what else they're revealing what else there's going to be part of the game and everything so yeah there's still a lot to see so hopefully it gets addressed in some way for you (laughs) Um, (laughs) but yeah like you said like i just can't not play an animal crossing game i've been playing of course not (laughs) i i play i people ask me every month like why am i doing this to myself as i stream amiibo festival (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, well, I don't know. It's I'm having fun with it. <laughs> Still Animal Crossing. Yeah. That's why I'm playing Pocket Camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just you can't help getting those little critters in your life. <laughs> um, cool. Um, I guess outside of that, like, I, I feel like we heard some of, some of your worries and everything. But what excites you about this new game? Well, the major thing is that the communication parts never looked better. Um, with just the sheer amount of people that are going to be able to play at once. Um, I'm sure the online connectivity is going to be amazing. I bet it's going to be just better than ever for sharing stuff with people. That sort of like show and tell thing that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, On top of that, obviously the game looks gorgeous. It like, that's exactly what I wanted an Animal Crossing game to look like uh, graphically. You know, it's, it's just really beautiful and and serene. And um, I think it, I think it looks really nice. So there's there's still definitely some positives in there. Um, <laughs> I have some hopes and stuff too. Like I hope they introduce some more villager types, and um, I'm sure there'll be some more special characters. Um, there's all kinds of things that I'm excited about that are sort of like yet to be seen. <laughs> um, but from what we have seen, definitely just um, the way the world looks and the uh, the potential of the communication stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Last, uh, maybe it was a couple weeks ago or so, but Sergio and I were talking about just how surprised we were that we haven't really seen any new characters yet. Um, so we're definitely hoping for that too. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So then I guess we have some miscellaneous questions for you. Um, 
but I wanted to focus a little bit on your Animal Crossing collection, and I guess I wanted to ask you, like, what is your most prized possession in that collection? This is an easy answer because I have an original uh, copy of Dobutsu no Mori, the Animal Crossing on Nintendo 64, complete in box, and it is signed by Hisashi Nogami, who is, of course, um, oh, the wow. game's yeah, <laughs> uh, he's the game's uh, co-director, and he still works on the games today. Also, uh, directs Splatoon and that sort of thing. So, that is definitely my most prized possession. Um, he even drew Bob on it. He signed his oh, name wow. and drew drew a little <laughs> little Bob face on it. So um, that's very proudly displayed in my collection and a really cool um, opportunity for me to meet him. He doesn't speak any English, but um, I had a friend of mine who translated for us and, you know, had like a really a short, just like, oh, you're a big Animal Crossing fan. Thank you. And <laughs> that kind of conversation. <laughs> Yeah, that's really awesome. So I, I had kind of a similar-ish follow-up. Um, it might be the same question, might be a different answer, I don't know. But if you could just keep one item from your Animal Cro Crossing collection, would it be that? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think it would be. <laughs> I mean, I would. I want to keep my copies of the game that I can play. Because <laughs> um, the Japanese one, you know... I've, I've popped it in, of course, but I don't have like a running town on it because Animal Crossing's not really Animal Crossing without understanding the dialogue. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what about with the, like your entire video game collection? Um, because I'm sure you, I, well, I've seen you have a lot of different things. <laughs> and so with that, it, with keeping your whole collection in mind, is there something that you would keep over that? Gosh, that is a really <laughs> that's a really tough question. Um, I mean, that one's at least in my top three, um, and <laughs> the other two aren't even like really video games, um, but they're in my collection and they sort of count. So um, the other two things that I would put at like the most important for me. Um, oh, maybe there's maybe there's three more. Um, <laughs> I've got. I still have my uh, Game Boy Color that I've had since I was a kid. That's like the only thing that survived from <laughs> when I was a kid. So that one's important to me. Um, I have uh, an Ultra Hand, a Nintendo Ultra Hand, which is a oh. toy they made, you know, all the way back in, uh, oh gosh, 68, I want to say. I can't remember the exact <laughs> tape, um, date, but it's uh, Gunpei Akoi who made uh, the Game Boy and the Game & Watch and a bunch of other stuff at Nintendo. That was his first like that was the first thing that he created that Nintendo actually put out for sale um and was a huge success and it was it it's like it was a five dollar toy that you know because it's vintage <laughs> and very important uh it cost me like two hundred and fifty dollars but, wow. um, <laughs> but it's really cool to have in my collection um and then the last thing this is the weirdest thing, and I'll try to make this explanation short, but um, it was the thing I've been after basically for, I don't know, four or five years. Um, I collect for the Bandai Wonderswan, which is a handheld console that was only released in Japan and some parts <laughs> of uh, Korea and Asia and stuff. Um, and it so there is this really, really rare... Uh, version of the Wonder Swan that comes with a scale and a program, and it's called Mama Mite. It's for tracking your pregnancy. And <laughs> I think I told you towards the beginning that I, you know, 
have been really inspired by like, wow, video games can be so weird. I'm really into this stuff. So um, as far as I know, there have only been three found in the world ever. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so I've had, yeah, I mean, I thought I would go my whole life without seeing one of these, but um, I had an auction alert set up on Yahoo Auctions, which is where I buy all my Japanese stuff that's like, they're, that's what they use instead of eBay, basically, in Japan, is a site called Yahoo Auctions, mm -hmm. and uh, popped up, and I bought it, <laughs> like, instantly, um, and yeah, that one, that was super cool, so I'm actually working on researching that one right now, so that I can talk about it, because it's, uh, it's very, very unknown <laughs> in right, <general>. nice. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. Those are all really cool things. <laughs> um, so you do a lot of amazing things. Uh, what is kind of like your background and what advice would you have for people looking to achieve their own goals? So um, my background, I, you know, I, I went to high school in Texas. I uh, did well enough to get into the University of Washington, which is a pretty decent school. Um, and I went into communication and business, and I basically, I've just always been working my whole life. Like, as soon as I turned 15, um, I was trying to find jobs and always had, like, a, a side hustle, you know, like, I, would, I used to, like, draw things for people for money and just always been really, like, uh, focused on doing something productive and trying to make money and that sort of thing, uh, which is funny because now I'm a lot less focused on the money part of it. Uh, with a nonprofit, but um, yeah, so I, when I was in college, I just started trying to get myself out there. Um, oh, I guess I should back up a little bit. In high school, I um, decided that the restaurant I worked for um, needed a social media presence because this is not at like the very beginning of social media taking off or anything, but like, you know, Twitter was just kind of starting out and that sort of thing. And I was like, you guys should have like a Facebook page and a Twitter. Um, and they let me run that when I was like <laughs> 17. And so I was like, okay, well maybe I'm just going to do like PR and, um, you know, marketing and that sort of thing. So when I moved to Seattle, um, I was working at Pink Gorilla. Then I got a sort of side gig where I would uh, where I worked for a marketing company. Um, I did like some summer internships um, with, I did one with like the New York Mets and did sports for a little while. Uh, <laughs> so kind of, kind of bounced all over the place, but basically I've just been trying to do something like I've always just been really, really busy and always trying to, uh, you know, get myself ahead like that. So my advice um well, I don't know if I'd advise bouncing around as much as I did, but <laughs> definitely just something my dad told me a long time ago. He's like, if you if you just know more than everyone else and you outwork everyone else, then there's no way you can fail. And that's what I've found to be true. And it's it's not a life for everybody. It's not um, I don't think you should have to like outwork everybody in order to succeed. You definitely don't have to. But that's that's always just been my like total nose to the grindstone. Like let's, <laughs> let's just outwork everyone. Let's, uh, out, you know, and, and you know, I've certainly had failures, um, all along the way. Um, I've, yeah, I mean, I've, I've certainly not like been only successful, but I, I just work really, really hard. And my advice <laughs> is if you want to, <laughs> if you want to guarantee success, that's how you do it. But, um, definitely, being nice to people and meeting a bunch of people um, has also been 
really helpful for me too. Life is a lot of uh, opportunities come out from, you know, being friends with people and, and knowing some good people. So that part too, that was a little all over the place. <laughs> well, that was awesome. Though. I think, I think that's very inspiring for sure. I think that's good advice to follow for people. <laughs> Um, so I have a couple more questions for you. Uh, yeah. I saw you got to meet Aya Kyogoku at E3 this year, who is a completely awesome person. <laughs> but any <laughs> fun details about that experience? Well, the the first thing I noticed is that she's my height, which was really funny because I always wear, um, I'm 4'11 on a good day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very short. And so when I go to like industry events and stuff, because people tend to sort of look at me like I'm a child otherwise, I usually wear like pretty tall heels, um, which I don't recommend. Like they hurt my feet and everything. It's not fun, but it's <laughs> it's so that I'm not like, you know, I'm not everyone in the world is towering over me. Um, so when I met her, it was funny because I'm, I was wearing these like four and a half inch heels and I was like, oh my God, I'm like four inches taller than her right now. <laughs> this is so weird. I've never been taller than anybody. <laughs> um, she was super nice though. She's uh, Her English is pretty good. Uh, we were able to like talk without my translator friend for a little bit. Um, I wasn't allowed to like interview her or anything. I really wanted to, but um, it was so funny because uh, I had tried to interview Bill Trinan, who you guys might know has uh, worked on pretty much all the Animal Crossing games is in localization. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so he knew that I had this project I was working on and uh, that I had talked to him about it before. And he actually did want to be involved, but, you know, Nintendo is just kind of like, we can't always, you know, we, we can't always authorize every interview, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So I understood, but he saw me talking to her and he like kind of came over and like started hanging over. I'm like, I'm not interviewing her. <laughs> Yeah, so that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> that that's amazing to me because that is one of our dreams for this show to just talk to anybody who has worked on an Animal Crossing game. I heard you mention that in an episode I was just listening to, and I was like, I heard that, and I was like, oh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's why it's a dream for sure. Like, <laughs> I'm sure it'll happen one day while I'm asleep. <laughs> um, but with that in mind, like, what is something that you'd love to ask from a developer on Animal Crossing? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um I think the one I go to, though, uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the origins of the first Animal Crossing, but um, the very first pitch for it was nothing like the Animal Crossing we know and love today. It was like a dungeon crawler um, with animals in it, <laughs> and oh. uh, it was inspired by Diablo. Katsuyaguchi was really into Diablo at the time, um, and so he was making like a cute family-friendly, animal-assisted <laughs> Diablo, basically. And that, that was his pitch. And um, obviously the game changed drastically. A big part of that was because it was being developed for the Nintendo 64 disk drive, um, and then everything got cut from that disk drive because it performed really poorly in Japan. Um, and they, you know, they had to move it to a smaller cartridge, so they, they kind of rethought the entire game. Um, so I would really love to ask him some questions about that. Um, a, do does he think the game would have ever been made had he not pitched it originally like it like a normal quote unquote game? Mm -hmm. um, and B like does he still want to make that game? Like does he still think <laughs> that game is a good idea? <laughs> like that version of Animal Crossing. Um, so 
that like the really early stuff to me would be fascinating to hear more about. Yeah, that is that's pretty awesome. I did not know that at all. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very different game, though. <laughs> it would be, yeah. It, I mean, absolutely nothing like it is now. And you know, it obviously didn't get like very far into development at all. Um, as far as he he talked about this in a, at a in a GDC talk one year, I think in like 2006 or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, they had like design documents and they were talking to you know it had been approved like it wasn't like it wasn't like oh this is just an idea i had it was like no this is we're gonna start developing for this and didn't get much further than that but uh still super interesting to me yeah that's pretty awesome i guess the only thing we can really wait for is i've been really happy that nintendo's been doing their own podcast that nintendo power podcast and yeah yeah that's been great so i'm just like anxiously waiting for the day they talk about animal crossing on that yeah because <laughs> i'm like which i mean they sh i'm sure they will inevitably right like they'll have some of these people probably on that podcast right. to talk about it yeah i feel like that's the right now unfortunately the only hope we have at getting some of that <laughs> developer insight <laughs> and it's whatever the pr people think is okay to talk about <laughs> there's just so many barriers to entry yeah i on know there. it's a bummer but maybe you know maybe one day that's st that stuff will change maybe people will start to want to tell the world a little bit more about like making games and their process and everything. I, I really hope so, at least. I hope so, too. That's definitely what, what we're working towards. <laughs> awesome. Well, we have this last little segment in our show. It's called Haken's Islander Corner. Um, each week, we ask our patrons a question on Patreon, and they give us their answers, and we read some of them. So this week's question was, what was the biggest mistake you ever made in Animal Crossing? And Kelsey, uh, what, what's yours? Oh, gosh. I... I did not prepare for this question, and uh, there's so many, um, but I think one of the biggest ones was, um, like, not being careful in City Folk. Do you guys remember in, did you play City Folk mm -hmm. on the Wii? Yes. Okay, so do you remember how you would, like, the grass would wear down? Under yes. you, yes, and it was like impossible to grow back. Um, so I didn't like, I wasn't being careful at first. I was like, oh, this, there's no way this is going to become a problem. Like, I can see the grass wearing <laughs> down a little bit, but like, it didn't take long for half of my town to just be dirt, <laughs> and it was horrifying. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, my town looks awful, and the bugs don't come when it's just dirt. Um, Oh, yeah. So I basically was planting flowers in like every single square and then like walking in like the most careful, um, like I would put down patterns and be like, okay, I can only walk on these squares. And like, that's just <laughs> no way to, that's not a fun way to play the game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a rough experience for a lot of people. <laughs> um, Sergio, what's the biggest mistake you ever made? Well, other than deleting some of my previous times, which I still don't know why I did that. I guess I felt I was done <laughs> with the games. And for some reason, I thought I would never want to go back to them. But <laughs> other than that, I think it was um, farming my second New Leaf Town basically for money. I planted just perfect fruit trees and I would use it for turnips. And basically, I got rich too quickly in New Leaf. And I, I felt mm. like that kind of 
push me too too far too quickly i'm definitely gonna take my time in new horizons you know money comes when it does just like in real life so i'm i'm <laughs> i'm excited to try that approach this time yeah yeah i can relate to that one about deleting towns because i'm still so sad about my first you, you, pretty much the only town that i have that was my original is my new leaf one <laughs> at this point <laughs> but I'll say I think my biggest mistake uh, wasn't actually an in-game mistake. It's a merchandise mistake. And that was me skipping out on importing the Sanrio cards before they skyrocketed. Um, to... Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only ones I'm missing too. <laughs> you, you, okay, so I actually, I lucked out. I have them now. And it's because one of our dear friends in Norway, uh, Newt, she bought a ton of packs back when they were out and so she heard an episode where i said i was missing them and then she gave me a great deal on them so oh, good <laughs> yeah that's the only reason i have them but that that's one of my biggest mistakes with animal crossing and now i've learned i'm just like okay if i see it i'm buying it <laughs> <laughs> i got lucky with the rv ones because um i mean i would have gone out and bought some packs those are pretty expensive now um but <laughs> the uh they came out like kind of close to christmas and so my fiance bought me 15 packs of them and so i got i got 49 out of 50 (laughs) just from doing that um so yeah i'm very very lucky that he got me 15 packs because they very quickly became impossible to find Mm -hmm. yeah so everybody listening if we get lucky if nintendo magically decides to say all right new horizons is coming out and it's amiibo compatible might as well put these back out there hop on that (laughs) be sure to do it immediately (laughs) yes because they disappear i may have been one of the reasons last time (laughs) because i remember specifically going into like GameStops and toys rs's back when that was a thing (laughs) um and buying out their all of them (laughs) <laughs> yep. So if you want to find them, um, luckily there are a lot of really cool places to trade as well. Um, essentially what I went for back when they came out was I'd get about 18 packs uh, because that would get me to, I think, 102 cards. I think that was the math. And then from there, I would just go on like Reddit uh, for, I think it was the Amiibo Swap subreddit. and. Cool. That where was where I was able to complete my collection, just trading with other people. So, um, yeah, if if that opportunity arises, don't make the mistake I made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So let's go ahead and read through some of these answers. Sergio, like usual, will go back and forth. Um, and I'll start yes. with uh, Tab, who said, accidentally destroying hybrids. It oh. happened more Oof. often than it should have. Apparently, my real-life clumsiness carried over into the game (laughs) um yeah that's always a bummer to lose your flowers (laughs) especially ones that you have to spend extra time to get you know uh it's a rough life (laughs) (laughs) i've definitely done that (laughs) (laughs) yeah so our next answer is by lake mt and they said I thought all turnips gained value when buried. So I buried a fortune's worth of normal turnips only for them to disappear in a few days. Never made that mistake again. <laughs> that's true. At least, you know, at least that's one you make one time and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. But I do, that reminds me of that red turnip in Wild World, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Kind of some farming in Animal Crossing. Yeah. Early days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bishop Kayla said, 
The time was 2005. I was at my grandparents' house waiting for my mom to pick me up from work. I had been playing pop- population growing all day and got so much accomplished. My grandparents had one of those light switches that controlled an outlet. My mom got there and went to flip the switch to turn the light on. The power to my GameCube shut off and I lost all of my progress. I guess oh, my mistake no. was not warning my mom when she walked in. That mistake was not made again. Tears were shed. I was 11. <laughs> oh. Or saving halfway through the day. <laughs> I know. Because that, that one does have the option to save and continue. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at least you can get a little portion of your gameplay back. <laughs> oh, man. The next answer is by Honey Oceans, and they say, At the very beginning of the game, I sold my first perfect fruit instead of planting it and had to wait months upon months to get another. I didn't really know its importance then and just saw it was worth a decent amount more than regular fruit, so I handed it off to Reese. Months on months later, I finally got my next perfect cherry and accidentally gave it to a villager. <laughs> Never had a perfect fruit tree in my town to this day. Oh, Aww. man. <laughs> yeah, Sergio, you needed that playthrough so you didn't get too rich too soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so Grizzly Nina said, losing touch with a new leaf best friend. We met randomly on the island and totally clicked, visited each other's towns all the time, and trusted one another to not ruin flowers or steal fruit but we never exchanged codes or twitter or anything i hope she finds our discord one day oh, <laughs> oh. nice! that's really cute i love that one yeah <laughs> i hope they find us too nina <laughs> yeah definitely so fantastic says my biggest mistake was hacking my new leaf game when i first played new leaf i was greedy and tempted to have the game so that i could buy the stuff i wanted so i hacked my bells through a program called power saves i got my bank account maxed out <laughs> to buy so many things i could even buy tom nook with 999 million bells <laughs> however i also destroyed my experience of enjoying the game I vow to never hack my game ever again. <laughs> yes, that's, I can relate. That's just like what you said. Yeah, yes. getting too rich too fast, it kind of takes a lot of the the drive out of the game. Yes, <laughs> what and, are you working for anymore? Yeah, and even some of the playtime, which you definitely don't want to do. You want the most of it. Yeah. Um, so our last answer is from Dogbert, and they said, This brought back some bad memories. In my GameCube <laughs> game, I was playing around with the travel data function, where you can store your character on a memory card in order to bring your memory card and character to a friend's house. And I was a little confused as to how it worked. When I was trying to get back to my town to play the game normally, it wasn't working. This resulted in me somehow deleting the travel data or town data. I still don't know how. I lost my very first GameCube town this way, and I still miss it. Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's. Uh, there were a lot of people who mentioned that just losing a town, losing their... Um, just what uh, their first experience with the game, you know, it's very rough to go through. <laughs> um, cool. Well, Kelsey, it's been so awesome having you on. I've been very excited to have you on for a long time, and I want other people to go and find you and follow all the really awesome things that you do. So, um, where can they find you? Where they where can they find a lot of your projects and everything? 
So I am on Twitter uh, at Kelslewin, K-E-L-S-L-E-W-I-N. Um, I'm also on YouTube if you want to see some of the like research and stuff I've done. That's YouTube.com slash Kelsey Lewin. Um, and then at, I don't know, follow the Video Game History Foundation. We're at Game History Org on all social media. And uh, you, know, you can go to the website GameHistory.org. Yeah, and I hope they do and find all of the really cool things that you do because, like I said, it's really awesome to see yes. the research that you've done and put out there for everybody. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Haken, an Animal Crossing podcast. Don't want the episode to end? Well, you can keep the conversation going by Nintendo switching over to our Discord. Just follow the link in the description, and you can talk with other people who love Animal Crossing as much as you do, including Sergio and me. Want to support the show in a bigger way and get your voice heard during the show? Well, you can visit patreon.com slash Nintendo. You can support our show with just $1, have an episode dedicated to you, get special access to a secret room on Discord, join in on the Haken Islander Corner, and even read a monthly newsletter covering all things Haken and Chewy Plays. We really appreciate the support and put your money toward great things on the show. Tuned in on YouTube? The comments are a great place to let us know your answers to the Haken Islander Corner. What was your biggest mistake you ever made in Animal Crossing? And if you dig what you hear, please KK slide over to the review section on your platform of choice. Let people know what they're missing out on. And Haken is a wild production brought to you by Chewy, Sergio, and all of our patrons. We thank you for listening, and we hope you have a great week. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.